p.m. Uh, Pacific time, 7 p.m. Eastern time. And I'm really excited to have here a guest. He's been on before, who has a unique perspective, uh, at least for the people that I've talked to. Um, I had the good fortune of being on a panel with him, uh, put on by a, a local CPA firm. Uh, and rather than just, uh, I want to say just an attorney, but rather than the perspective most commonly affiliated with, which is a sole proprietor attorney, um, our guest today, Joshua Driscoll, is the managing partner for a firm. I don't want to describe the firm I want him to, but he is the big boss of the office and offices. Uh, Joshua Driscoll, thank you so much for coming back with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do it, Bill, and good to see everybody. So as Bill mentioned, I'm the managing partner of our firm, uh, firms called Lagerloff. We're uh, primarily based in Pasadena, California. That's where most of our firm's lawyers are. We have a little over 120 people, 50 or so of those folks are attorneys, primarily focused on um, family office, family wealth transition, uh, and all of the association associated work with that. So everything from probate, trust administration, um, advanced planning. Um, I run our family office group. So that's a little bit of uh, everything when it comes to that. It's corporate taxation, real estate, you know, all the fun stuff. And um, when it comes to probates, we do about 400 probates a year. So we've definitely done a couple and have seen just about every kind of weird um, factual situation that can come up. Um, heavily connected to the real estate community from an agent perspective, but also title company perspective. I have title companies throughout the state that reach out to me regarding um, weird probate issues that they have or um, underwriting issues related to sales. So um, I've seen a lot of it and occasionally I still get surprised. So maybe somebody will ask something today that still surprises me and I don't know the answer and that's okay too. So but, dig deep um, for your word cases here. This is a guy who uh, we're going to play stump the attorney today. If you have something that's really my God. unusual, <laughs> what percentage of your business day is as the managing partner, and what percentage of your business day is as an attorney uh, advising clients? It seems like a hundred percent of both, but uh, <laughs> lately. <laughs> Yeah. So actually, you know, it's gotten better. Um, there was a time not too long ago where I was, you know, under desk hooking computers up and doing everything from, you know, dusting the light bulbs to practicing law. But now we've gotten to a point size wise um, that I can really focus on one of the clients that I want to serve, which are the high net worth clients with sophisticated, crazy issues. And um and but also have the firm that I want, which is you know continuing to grow, continuing to expand, and really done that through both um, really good attorneys and associates around me on the practicing side, and really good administrative folks on the firm side. Um, I'm lucky; I get to do what I love, which is grow a business and manage the firm, but also practice. Um, I am our firm's. Pro continue to be our firm's number one um, generator of new business and, and uh, work product and through me and, and my group. So um, I know some managing partners solely manage the firm. I think I would be really bored with that. And if I only had to practice law, I think I'd get bored with that too. So it's a really good um, mashup. So let's, let's first talk about kind of the, the lawyer boots in the ground part of, of Joshua's uh, business currently. Um, so you do um, uh, family focus, so that means transitions. And then I imagine um, you are trying to avoid probate uh, by planning ahead and finding yourself in probate when there's contests or unique circumstances. Um, I, I, so 
Do you get involved in the actual estate planning? Is that something that your firm does? Do you have attorneys yeah. to do that on your team? Absolutely. Yeah. So we get involved everything from the from simple estate uh, planning to very sophisticated planning. At this point, most of the clients that I work with directly have taxable estates. So that would be somebody that has, uh, if they're married in the state worth more than twenty six million, if they're not married in the state worth more than thirteen million. Um, that number is going to change. So there's going to be uh, more people that uh, or that taxable event will probably move up for me because we've got um, uh, an exemption amount that's ex that's reducing in, at the end of 2025. So you're going to see a fair amount of people doing more sophisticated planning just because more people will have taxable estates. Um, where that's relevant for this group is uh, around clients that are approaching you around um, sales of property and what they might be able to do to avoid taxation. I do a lot of work with um, agents around charitable remainder trusts and other types of charitable vehicles uh, that can um, really be a good, in the right circumstance, be a really good tool for a client. And the way that that would work in most circumstances, and I think, Bill, probably the panel you saw me talk on was a little, this came up a little bit is you know, you've got the client that has you know, a five unit building or a bunch of re uh, rental real estate. They can't sell it because the tax hit would be too high. They don't wanna manage it anymore. They don't wanna do a 1031 exchange because they don't want real estate any longer. Um, so there are a number of good options. There are 1031 alternatives that we can look at. There are um, uh, charitable trusts that we can look at where the person donates the property to this charitable trust and in exchange gets a lifetime stream of income or their kids get the lifetime stream of income. And you know, the best example I've seen with this working was an older gentleman that had worked his whole life building a portfolio of properties and was just basically bound to them um, physically and mentally and everything else. Wanted to get rid of them, didn't want to be a landlord anymore, left half of them vacant, and um, but was afraid to do anything, afraid to sell them. And we structured a transaction where he sold a couple to give himself some cash, but then he also donated the rest of them to a charitable trust that he then took an income stream from. And the income stream from that was about three times what he was charging in rent. Um, so it worked out really well for him. He didn't have any heirs or any kids or anything. So he, he at the end of his life, which he's still alive, but at the end of his life, that ch the charity that he selected will receive the bulk of what's left. Right. And that can be a really, really nice structure. So we do a lot of stuff like that too. And that's you know where as agents, you can see those, you know, you can see those types of scenarios where that is needed, right? All the time, a multifamily, that scenario, almost every time they've held the property for 30, 40 years, they got lax on the rental increases, it's a little underperforming, they can't get the dollar they want because the, the rental's not performing and, and it's getting harder and harder to raise rents, that's a whole political question, and it, it, and it doesn't get better year after year, it gets a little worse, a little worse, they get older, mm -hmm. that scenario I see all the time. One of the, one of the common um, solutions that really in my career has never worked for my clients uh, is a 1031 exchange. And now I'm just curious your experience. Every customer I've ever talked to who set one up walked away at best uh, and most commonly disappointed because they identified a property they wanted, that one didn't work out. A second one they're okay with, uh, that one didn't work out maybe so well. And a third one they threw in there and now they're stuck with that or it's not gonna work. And so you end up buying it either an inferior property or 
they don't do the 1031 exchange. Is I, you mentioned there's alternatives, but is that specifically 1031? Is that a common experience? Or is that just my my experience? Well, I think it, it sort of is a common experience, but it's oftentimes the uh, only option, right? You know, if you've got somebody who who wants to sell a piece of property, and they're you know, it's 1031 exchange eligible, and they're looking at either paying a million dollars in tax, let's say, or buying a less desirable property than they otherwise might have wanted to. Um, oftentimes, the less desirable property wins. Uh, the the key to 1031 exchanges is almost to have a, a transaction lined up ahead of time, right. right? So, you know, it's not uncommon to have um, already opened escrow potentially on something and then doing a 1031 exchange out of the property that you um, are looking to dispose of. That's called a reverse 1031 exchange and it works in the same way, right? Where you've already identified property X or you have an option on it or something like that. Right. And then you go right into that other piece of property. Right. Um, there are other options, though. Uh, Delaware statutory trusts are another option. And those, <clears throat> you know, sometimes they're looked at as the 1031 last resort. You know, it's like that sort of the, the final pull of the little thing on the parachute, like hoping that it'll slow you down before you hit the ground. But it can also... Uh, Sorry, that's a graphic image right there. Yeah. yeah <laughs> but, uh, they're, but they also actually have their place just from the beginning. I have a couple of clients in the last few years that have used these. Um, they were older, did not want to have a physical property that they needed to deal with any longer, right. Right? right? They didn't want to have a manager. They didn't want to have a, they didn't want to have to worry about uh, repairs. They didn't want to deal with any of that. And they exchanged into a DST and DSTs are like any other mutual fund or collection of securities. They will, so, some of them perform better than others. So you right. need to look at, you know, the institution that you're doing business with, making right. sure that it's the right choice. But in, in most circumstances, these are returning anywhere between seven and 12%, um, you know, which is a great return for many people. Usually, unless the person's owned the property a long time, it's often in excess of their cap rate. So, you know, it's, it's just, you look at those options and you see what, what's there. The, the downside to a DST is that they don't last forever. At some point right. in time, the DST operator will sell the property or part of the properties that you are associated with. And when that happens, you've got to either find another DST or right. you've got an opportunity to go into a piece of dirt again, if you want to do that. Right. Um, so, you know, it, it's not a perfect solution, but it is an alternative. Right. And for some people, it's a better solution than doing that, you know, trying to find the ubiquitous triple net lease, you know, with Starbucks in the middle of, you know, a fastest growing city in the world or something, you know, that's what everybody wants, but good luck. Right. 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 Well, I think the DST is a great play for the in the heir of the real estate who doesn't want to be in real estate. You can get a, a property that's very well managed by professional people with a track record. As long as you're prepared to flip it over every three, five, seven years uh, and manage a portfolio of them, it's like stocks. It's just another way to get out of yeah. real estate. Absolutely. So, so, so going back to kind of probate, so you guys are obviously – you know, uh, you're going to be modest, so I'm going to, for the people listening, you're kind of at the top, towards the top of the food chain of attorneys, uh, law firms on probate and trust administration, but you also deal with, I'm sure all the time, the one outstanding heir, the one beneficiary, the one person oh, yeah. who hires an attorney. And this is what we as realtors deal with a lot, is the one attorney who doesn't really do probate, but the customer comes to him, he, they, 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 
somehow agree on some sort of a contingency arrangement or some sort of a fee to get things started. And it just seems like there's a lot of um, noise in the probate process, right? And you yeah. guys are a, 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 you know, a firm, you have bills to pay, you have, you know, and nobody's saying that you're overcharging, but it's not cheap to have good legal help. So you can't afford to get customers drawn into civil wars of, of attorney fees. So what are some thoughts you give to custom, your clients when this is coming? And, and some of it's inevitable, some of it's the price of doing business, um, but at the same time, you want to set their expectations. Yeah, you know, and it depends on every stage. So, you know, ideally we're avoiding probate altogether, right? And we're talking to clients proactively and you guys are talking to clients proactively about um, utilization of living trusts and other types of transfer vehicles that don't involve the probate process. And primarily in California, we're really talking about uh, trusts. There are transfer on death deeds that are permitted now. Those aren't super common and they're also, you know, a little bit of litigation hazards with some of those. So we typically would recommend a revocable living trust, having a trustee either as a professional person or someone that you trust to manage that process after your death. That person has the power, obviously, to sell the property and to make quick work of what is otherwise a arduous process if you go through the probate you know, fully. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you weren't that lucky and the hand that you were dealt was not to have put the property into a probate or into a trust and you have a probate situation... Probate works most of the time, but it works in a very slow, costly way, right? Probate is designed to uh, make sure that um, you the heirs get the assets that they're supposed to get, but it's also designed to make sure that creditors are able to get their fair shake if the person owed money. So there's all of these um, roadblocks, intentional roadblocks inserted by the probate code to make sure that somebody is, uh, you know, before any distributions are made to heirs that everybody else has been paid that could potentially have a claim against that person. So it co- it takes time and it costs a lot of money. You know, a million dollar probate, which is a pretty common number, is about 26 grand. Um, so, you know, you look at that and you say, okay, that's kind of a lot and compare that with a, with a comparable trust administration it's probably half that, right? And much faster and, you know, private and not, you know, subject to a court approval. So, there's a lot of advantages to that. If you've, you know, we've all probably been there as an agent, you go to a listing or you get a call from somebody and says, I want to sell grandma's house. And then you pull title and then everybody, uh, every, the only person who doesn't own that house is grandma. Right. <laughs> and uh, so you've got to figure out, okay, where, who is the party that is actually going to be, you know, what do we have to do to get this thing ready to go? Right. Mm -hmm. And we come in a lot there um, because there's often times I'm dealing with one right now. A title company brought us in and says, uh, hey, we think this is a probate. Are we right? And the factual situation was, you know, three or four people on title. Um, One of the parties on title was three people, three groups of people on title because we have a one six interest that we're dealing with here. One of the parties um, did a deed at some point related to their interest in the property. Uh, it just said, you know, blank and blank, husband and wife. Well, that's not really a vesting in California. And it is and it isn't. It, it basically vests as a tenant in common if you go, if you kind of go all the way through and follow it around, follow it along. So their question was, is there a right of survivorship between the spouses? And they know the answer and the answer is no, which is why they asked me anyway to confirm that. But um, 
So there was no right of survivorship between these two parties. So now we have this one-sixth interest that needs to be probated. And that's not a fun case for me because there's really not a lot of fees in it and it's a big pain in the butt, but it's the only way to really do it because um, there, there are a couple other methods, but by and large, you need to probate it. Um, oh boy, we got the old uh, Zoom giving me my uh, my little little emoticons when I when I talk with my hands. Um, uh, so, you know, we're going to probate that portion, right? And that's going to be the fastest, easiest way to get uh, a person to be in control of that one six interest to consent to the sale. Right. Because otherwise, you can't sell five six of the property with one six unclear. Can't get town insurance. Can't get financing. Correct. It just exactly. it just holds the whole thing up. Holds the whole thing up, and you know, oftentimes they're you know they're calling me once they've opened escrow. So there's typically you know not a whole lot of time here. You know, you guys know that the average period of an escrow it's not a lot. So you know, we're almost always extending escrow. We're almost always doing some of these things in order to clear some of these title defects. Um, but you know, county by county, it, sometimes we can get you, you know, get somebody in a position in as little as 30, 45 days, and sometimes it takes longer. It just depends on the county. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a mess, and that's a common scenario. So let's stop there for a second because county to county varies. <clears throat> but if you make one mistake and the judge can't approve you, then you get continued for 30, 60, 90 oh, yeah. days or At longer. Least by county, yeah. could be six months and judge is not in a good mood about what you did. And that just adds to the time, right? Yes. Which adds to the heirs frustration and adds to your expenses. And even though you get paid for it, that's not what you want to bill for, right? So yeah. I would imagine that both speed and accuracy the first time through would be critical when you're in those cases, you're holding up a big deal because of that one piece. Yeah, it is. And you know, sometimes there are alternatives to probate, but by and large, they're not. And in a factual situation like that, um, yeah, it's important to be right from the beginning um, because it, the costs of being wrong are are time. Right. You know, it, the probate court is a court of equity, which is which is different than a court of law. If you think about a court of law, that's Judge Judy, right? She's she's looking at the four corners of an agreement and she's saying, okay, you're wrong because of X, Y, and Z. A court of equity is looking at fairness among the parties, right? What was the intent of what was happening here? Regard, you know, who cares that grandma wrote her will on a napkin and she technically failed to meet all the legal requirements of a will? That's a great argument, but at the end of the day, we can see what she was trying to do, right? That's a court of equity. Mm -hmm. So in a court of equity, there are a lot of pro per parties. These are people that are representing themselves and that is absolutely a recipe for a long process. Will you eventually get there? Probably. Um, but it will be at, at the end of a very long, long road. And uh, hiring somebody or bringing in somebody that is familiar with probate that files a lot of probates is super important because, yeah. you know, it's not, it's not the kind of thing to get your buddy who also does family law to do that. They're just so different. So uh, we continue that conversation just real quick, some housekeeping. This is Probate Weekly. We do this every Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific time, 7 p.m. Eastern time. You can come in on the Zoom at probateweekly.com. You can watch the replays on social media, YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook. Love to have you join us. If you're watching live, put the comments in. We'll catch them during the call. 
or afterwards I'll get back to you. We do have a call uh, coming on YouTube. Um, Josh, this is a pretty basic fundamental question. The, the guy that, that my broker says, don't answer because you can't give legal advice and you actually are an attorney, so you can give legal advice. Um, but this isn't really legal advice. When a property is in probate and the judge appoints an executor of the state, does the executor then have the right or the ability to assign the listing agent to sell the property? Yeah, generally speaking, yes. So in, in California, if this is a California probate court, which probably is, um, you there are two forms of executors, right? So executor is actually someone who is appointed under a will. An administrator is someone for, so, for someone who does not have a will. It's functionally the same thing. But um, in when they make that appointment, they're either going to do that with full authority or limited authority. And the definition of what that means is in the probate code. But some, generally speaking, we're always looking to have a client in the administrator role that has full authority because that gives them the ability to accept a listing or you know, sign a listing agreement, which the limited authority does as well, but they can accept an offer and close on it without court, without court approval. If you have someone that has limited authority, you have to accept an offer and then go to the court and have an overbid process completed. And overbid means that it's effectively an auction. Somebody else can show up and say, I know Bill was going to pay $500,000 for that house, but I'll pay five twenty-five. And now you've got uh, you know, a, a, an offer or a situation where uh, that, that price may be driven up. You might lose your first buyer. Um, we try to avoid limited authority probate wherever we can. And uh, we find that most attorneys that don't know how to do probate file limited authority because the forms yep. are, are shorter. And they just try to get it done faster. And it's like, well, okay, but this is, you know, you're really creating a whole nother cluster. And they, and they have less liability because the court approved the sale, but really they're not Correct. serving the customer. Yeah, exactly. You still have to give a NOPA, a notice of proposed action when you are going to be uh, acting under full authority. So you can't just say, I'm going to sell it for $50 to my buddy, right? The, administra the administrator or the executor gives a notice to all the beneficiaries and all the interested parties. And if somebody has an objection to that, they have 15 days to object. And if they don't object, then you can take that action without liability. So I don't know how much, I don't want to, I don't want you to give away anything uh, that's, uh, I don't want to ask anything that's proprietary, but when you say you do, you know, 400 probates, 500 probates a year, 40 a month or so, I imagine in your office, you have one or two or three designated people who do the initial petitions, right? Uh, one, of those, one of those numbers, something like that, most probably. Yeah. And so that person is doing either 10, 20, or 40 a month of just the petition right. that goes to court. And I imagine somebody's watching their rate of decline or approval, and, and if they make mistakes, they learn from them. And then if they don't make mistakes, they know what works, or they know what the clerk will do, what the judge will do. They learn from that process. And at some point, somebody in your office is pretty good at filing initial petitions that get approved in the first pass. Is that a fair summary of what goes that's on in your office? That's pretty fair. Yeah, that's pretty fair. We don't get a whole... So the probate world will give what's called probate notes. And that's really a probate examiner that has looked at your petition and uh, looked at it for, for technical deficiencies. Um, by and large, we have very few technical deficiencies um, and we, we cure those technical deficiencies prior to the hearing. And that's really the important part. Um, yeah, we've figured it out by now. Um, there are three attorneys that pretty much only practice in probate court 
on the administration side. So um, they're there every day in some capacity dealing with a probate matter. We have uh, four or five paralegals in that group too. So, you know, probate is absolutely a big piece of it. Um, so yeah, we've, we've sort of seen, seen it all at some point and, um, you know, made the mistake and fixed it, all that. So, so if you had five doing 40, that's like eight a month, they're doing one or two every single week versus 90%, this is my number, uh, but I have the data back at 9% of probate cases in LA County are done by an attorney who's done one or less probate in the last 12 months. That's probably true. I yeah. know it's true. I have the data. So my point yeah. is to people listening, if you if your life savings depend on selling a property, it's a probate, do you want to go to somebody who's maybe never done a probate petition or did one two years ago or an office where they're doing literally 40 a month and i think that at some point you get good at it you figure it out you figure the shortcuts you learn the people uh and i think that's one of the differences between your firm and the other now the truth is you don't yeah. charge more than other firms because there's statutory limits on the fees that's right there's statutory limits on the fees so we're basically the same price as everybody else now there are ex extraordinary fees that can be authorized in a case and where appropriate we charge extraordinary fees um, those are fees that are not covered under the statutory fee, and the code sets out what, what the statutory fee covers. But by and large, most of these are statutory fee cases. Um, we are extremely efficient with these cases. Uh, we monitor our ROI on these cases. So it, it does not behoove us to take a long time on a probate because it's a statutory fee. It's sort of like a commission, right? If you're going to sell the house for a million bucks, you're not making any more or less if you sell it for a million dollars on day one or six months later. Right. right. It's the same commission. So it's it's always to your benefit, generally speaking, to sell it as quickly as you can. Right. right. And we want to settle these cases or close these matters as quickly as we can. Um, yeah. And I have seen firsthand, Bill, the unfortunate set of circumstances that a, that an un, uh, unfamiliar attorney can prov uh, can bring into a case. I have one right now where. Uh, just a series of unfortunate events. The attorney wasn't very well versed. They hired a uh, somebody else who wasn't really well versed. They did a, a, a probate loan. I mean, it was just all a, a mess. And just looking at it in five minutes, I could have seen where a couple hundred grand more could go to the beneficiaries if just a few other, you know, a couple other ways of handling things had been done. And you know, oftentimes you don't see that until it's too late. Um, just like the value of hiring an agent that's familiar with the neighborhood of the property, right? We've right. all had those situations where you've got an out-of-town agent listing a property and it's sort of a nightmare, right? Either they priced it too high, too low. They don't understand the local conditions. They aren't familiar with the forms, the custom and practice. It's the same thing. And so I try to tell agents uh, who I coach on my team, uh, either you know you want to get business from attorneys who are doing a high volume or... The, for the 9% attorneys who don't really know their way, be the source that helps them. I I check no, probably co, uh, notes on all my cases. I'm often training the attorney or the paralegal on the process, which I'm glad to do. I mean, I, I don't mind. There might be a great attorney and a great relationship with the customer, and that's important, right? That relationship is ultimately important for the customer too, but they can't not have the fundamentals covered. And, uh, you know, I used to go to court every day when the judge would pronounce the attorney, about the probate notes and the attorney would think it was, they were stumped that there's such a thing as probate notes. You knew you're in trouble, right? You knew that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, have you checked the probate notes? Well, I'm not, uh, probate notes, your honor. 
Yeah, like that's you that? should be living on those. I'm, I'm checking them every day on, on cases, and I had one where we I checked at three o'clock. I called the attorney, but at four o'clock they updated, and uh, didn't ha I didn't have the right information. But I said to him, "Why check every day?" So uh, I guess I was a little early. Okay, so that's on the probate side. Um, so let's step back a little bit and talk about um, maybe more the the manager like looking back over your firm versus other other firms. Um, you know, in the world that I work in, most of the time I'm working with sole practitioners, uh, or maybe you know smaller firms, not firms of your size. Um, why does an attorney choose to work for a firm with 50 attorneys and multiple offices or more versus hanging a shingle? And what what is the value proposition that you offer to get them to want to work with you or appreciate the value you're creating? Yeah, you know, it's it, it's sort of similar to the real estate world, right? I mean, you have some some agents that are attracted to a, an operation like Compass, right? With the myriad of things that are going on and, and reach around the world, arguably, and connection points in all of the various places. And then you have folks that basically are their own broker, right? And they are uh, doing their own transactions. They're doing, you know, all the things that arguably Compass would be doing. And it's oftentimes really just a preference. I think the attorneys that are attracted to a firm like ours value um, the breadth of, of practice that we have because it's not just probate, right? It's probate, it's trust administration, it's taxable estates, it's everything that could possibly come up in a high net worth family uh, situation or in a company situation. Right. Um, and depending on your clients and depending on the type of practice that you have, um, it will matter where you are firm wise. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think the people that are attracted here like the fact that we can, for the most part, handle just about every type of transaction. And those that we can't, we have the connections to get done through other relationships. Where's your firm on the work from home, work from the office? Obviously, I can just see it on the hall. There's people working, and yet, uh, but I know, like most offices, you're not back like you were pre-COVID, I wouldn't imagine. But do you have a policy on that, and what's your experience as far as that? Then what's your goal as a managing you know, partner of the office? Yeah. Uh, what are you trying to accomplish? Yeah, so we're actually an outlier in this. Um, we are about 85% occupancy on a daily basis. So 80, that means 85% of our 120 employees are physically present in an office on a, on a, on a given day. Um, we do have some people that work remotely 100% of the time. Uh, our, for example, the primary attorney that leads our probate group works remotely from, from Auburn. We don't have an office in Auburn and that's near Sacramento and it does a great job there. Um, uh, but we view law as um, it's an apprenticeship profession. So you need to be present in order to learn that. And it mm. is an important piece. We are flexible for people. I have a day that I work from home, usually once a week or every two weeks. Um, I've done a lot of speaking on this. Uh, and because we, you know, law firms and professional services are a little bit higher on the uh, number of people that are in the office on a regular basis. But uh, we, we find it to be really important and it does help with the collegiality. It helps with culture. It helps with, um, just, you know, all of the various pieces that go into, um, handling a matter from start to finish. I, I absolutely see value in remote work. I think it's here to stay. It's not a fad, but there are roles that lend themselves to it. And there are roles that do not. And, um, you know, for us by and large, most of them are, uh, in office, for, for us. 
the I can see as the as you know, in management, obviously that's your goal, right? How else do you change the culture? How else do you train people effectively or uh, as much as you can, obviously in person? Yeah. Um, do you see are the attorneys who uh, newer attorneys who come to your firm? Are they attracted to that? And that's why they're joining you, or do you have to kind of sell them on that? Because I know in other professions, the younger people, like in real estate, you know, they, on one hand, they want they want the mentorship. They just want to come to the office every day to get it. And it's like, well, so what are, you, what are you saying to me? You want to watch YouTube videos all day long? That's not really going to work, right? Yeah. So how do you how do you bridge that gap? Or you recruiting the right people? Are you selling your people on the importance of it? Are you creating a culture of mentorship within your office to keep people connected how do you manage that as a partner yeah we're, we're pretty performance based so if somebody's performing well and they are looking to work more remotely i don't have a whole lot to say about it if somebody's not performing well it's one of the first things that we pull right it's like come in the office we need to see you we need to figure out where the problem lies and then we'll rediscuss you know you having a remote uh, component to the job um, new employees it's it is a requirement we don't even really it, but you know it's it's supervisor specific um, and it's role specific. So if we have somebody that is a very senior attorney that's bringing a book of business and they're effectively you know operating as a as a profit center for the firm, I'm not going to say a whole lot. Uh, we don't have a policy on it in particular. Um, but if somebody's a brand new associate, a couple years, you know, year or two out of school, no, they're going to be here, and we'll talk about remote work over time. Um, because you cannot, I can't teach you. It's not about you. Maybe you can learn remotely. I can't teach you remotely. And I'm right. the one paying you, so I get to choose. Mm. And um, that's sort of the way that we deal with it. And it, mm. it, it has resulted in us having a considerably better percentage of retention than market. Mm. Um, we do not have, uh, we did not struggle from the great laptop swap, uh, that was very popular a couple years ago, uh, or the great resignation as people would say, right. Where everybody was sort of moving around jobs and all of that. We fared well in that. And, uh, a big piece of that was the culture that we had built, which is built around an in-person environment. Yeah. I think, I think it's so important, especially in management. I don't know how, how do you build a culture if you don't have that? You're really... Can't. It's just, I don't think you can. I, I, and yeah, I just don't think you can. So um, let's talk about a lot of people that call here, mostly are real estate agents, real estate investors. You know, they imagine that you sit in your office all day long. You, you, you mentioned that you do uh, 500 probates a month. They imagine there's like a line out the door for real estate agents. You're handing out listings, kind of like the king waving his magic scepter of listings. But I'm guessing a lot of business comes from real estate agents, from real estate investors, from people who have relationships already built. So on the flip side, I see often, and I, I have a, a you know a Facebook group I, I manage pretty large, where people say you know who knows an attorney that does probate, and they'll name fifteen people, and I'll look at the names and say they don't do probate, you know. Yeah, who is this? Yeah, right. And so I'm sure you get people call you who call the office with the idea of referring business, but it just isn't any. There's a word probate somewhere in the discussion of what they need, but it has nothing to do with what you do. How do you vet the process, and how do you? I'm sure at some level, not you. You're also training your agent, your attorneys. On business development, how do you help people learn how to free the business that you want? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things to that question. I, you know, I've always been of the mindset to be uh, kind of going back to that apprenticeship model. I've always been, you know, very open to providing support and help. Um, you know, last night the mortgage broker connected me to an agent. She says, 911, I have a transaction problem. Can you please help?" You know, I wasn't available, but I got one of my associates to jump on the call. It was 
you know, relatively simple issue, but she was trying to keep her transaction on the rails and we helped do that. Um, you know, we didn't charge anything for that. That was just helping out. And I know that she'll call me next time she has something and, you know, mortgage broker's happy. He sends me a lot of stuff. So happy to do that. Right. His loans tied up in this too. So I understand. Right. So I'm trying to help them as well. Um, so I think, you know, I look for, I think it's twofold. One, there's a lot of people that pitch me for work. Right. And I could kind of give some thoughts around that. And then there's people that I'm looking to, um, you know, get referrals from and that kind of thing. And when it comes for referrals to us, you know, we're looking for an opportunity to make a difference, right? So if there's a, an issue or a matter where there's a lot of people depending on something like a sale or otherwise, right? We love those opportunities because, you know, it's an, our opportunity to shine. We can show how we can do the work and, and fix what has otherwise a, been a problem. I love sticky, weird issues where, you know, I kind of love it when somebody says, well, I've talked to two other attorneys and they don't really know what to do. And it's like, okay, that's fun. Right. Um, because we'll get a chance to say, yeah, that's easy. Or that's here. Oh, that is really weird. And here's how I would do it. Um, so I like that. And then if you want, I can talk about, um, how to best pitch probate attorneys. Yeah. Yeah. If you think that's helpful. Definitely. Um, so, you know, and there may be some metrics around this, but I think by and large, the best thing that you can do is find the couple, two or three probate attorneys in your market that are really the ones doing that kind of work and get in front of them somehow. Um, I've never been real responsive to um, things that go, you know, come into me unsolicited, right? Uh, I think it's because of the sheer number of those, it's going to get likely lost in the fray, right? And if I know Bill or I know somebody else that's on this call or whatever, um, on a personal level, I'm going to be more likely to think about them if I have an opportunity to, you know, make a referral on a property for a sale, then if I just got a random uh, call or a random letter that says, Hey, do you, are you selling the house at one, two, three main street? Sometimes I'm sure that works or people wouldn't be doing it. But when you're doing the volume that we're doing, right. If you're trying to get into that connection point, it's really about knowing the person, everybody on this call only does business if they can choose with people that they like bottom line. If you may be the greatest, you know, this person over here may be the best real estate agent in the world. The, the numbers may show that they sell for, they sell properties 15% any uh, above any other listing agent consistently. They've won every award, but they're a jerk. I don't care. Right? I'm not going to use them. I don't make any more really if the house sells for 15% more or not. It's kind of pennies at the end of the day on my side of things. What I want to deal with is somebody that I really like, that I know will get the job done, who I think is a good person, and I enjoy having an interaction with. Right? Um, that's really key. And I think if you can find those folks and find a way to add value to their practice, um, that'll help. You know, hey, you know, what, what are your pain points when working with agents? What are, you know, or what are your pain points on this? Or, you know, here's, here's what I have access to. How can I help you? That goes a heck of a lot longer of a way than some of that other stuff, um, which, yeah, like I said, may work and it probably does or people wouldn't do it. But if you're looking for long-term relationships, I think that's a key component. In your capacity, you know, as a manager, do you coach agent uh, attorneys on business development? And what yeah. are, what are the best, 
you know, what, what are the you know, best tips or practices for attorneys looking to build either probate business or avoiding probate business, you know, uh, uh, family planning, trust, those that type of work. What do you recommend or what are the more common areas that you recommend them to get involved with? Yeah, I think getting out there is key, right? Nobody's going to find you sitting alone in your office. They're not going to call ran a bunch of random numbers and hope they find a probate attorney or somebody else, right? So you've got to be out there and present. Um, I, I'm a big proponent of speaking and providing, um, you know, service to the community from that perspective and uh, mostly the colleague community, I would say, you know, this type of stuff where you can be an educational resource to other providers, I think is really key. Um, you know, sometimes speaking to the end client results in something and sometimes it doesn't. I think by and large, I, I like speaking higher level to other professionals. So kind of finding where your, where your niche is, um, doing stuff that you like, right? So if you don't like probate or you don't like estate planning or you don't like family law, you're, it's going to be difficult to be good at business development and something that you hate. Um, so finding the area uh, of, in this case, the law that you like, um, is important. Um, and, you know, and then you start to look at just being a good corporate citizen and being a good person to work with on a client perspective, right? Are you calling people back? Are you explaining what's going on? Are you putting yourselves in the shoes of the client? Because by more than likely they haven't probated an estate before, or they haven't, you know, done a sophisticated estate plan before or whatever. And, um, making sure that you're being a resource, right? Um, the difference between you and a chat GPT search is that you're able to take their factual situation, break it down in a way that is cognizable and understandable, and then help them apply what is being learned. Um, and that's really where I think, you know, if you do that and you put yourself out there a lot, you know, it's going to be hard not to have business come your way. And I think what you're saying there is you have to add the soft skills of the human communication with the technical skills of knowing what you're doing. You really need both. There's no way to, I don't think, be successful in the long run in, you know, as an attorney doing with families or a real estate agent uh, without having some of both. Or I should say, if you don't have both, you're limiting your business at the end of the day. Right. Um, great question from Brian, but I'm going to answer this one before Josh does because I, I have my own answer to this one. He says, don't you really have a go-to realtor? Would you even consider speaking with another realtor that doesn't that does have probates, or would you just say you have a realtor already? He literally is on this call. We don't really do business, and I will say um, I have the privilege of being with him on a panel, and I think he's an amazing resource, and I learned from him, um, and I think other attorneys see me talking with him and appreciate it. I also know that there are cases where there's like two parties, and one party may pick me, and the other one may be uh, referred to Josh or one of his attorneys, and they may not normally choose me, but they'll say, oh, I know Bill's a good guy. And we'll otherwise, instead of uh, fighting for it, we'll say, fine, he'll do a good job for us. And so as a real estate agent, I think that your job is to really do the work and not focus on the immediate results, doing the work of talking to people, meeting people, and educating people. So how would you answer that, Josh? You're going to talk to a, a group of title people or real estate agents, and they may or may not give you business or give the training and coaching business directly. Should they still do the phone calling? Should they still do the, the meetings and the education process? Yeah, I think so. Because the only way, you know, I think you, Brian used the word go-to realtor, right? Um, the only way somebody would be my go-to realtor in that situation is because they did one of those other things, right? At some point, they did something to get on my radar that uh, made me like them, right? And become friends with them and use them where I can. Um, and 
that person's out there for you. And it may, you know, very few firms do the number of probates that we do just because there's not that many probates. So if we're doing 400 of them, I mean, that's, you know, but there are firms that certainly do a lot of them. And, uh, and there are attorneys that do a lot of them. And it's not just probate, right? I mean, attorneys have the ability to swing people in different directions on various instances, whether it's trust administration, whether it's just a divorce scenario, whether it's whatever, right? And you want to be uh, the person that the attorney thinks of. Um, it's also important, I think, to just find an attorney, you know, find those relationships with attorneys or other professionals that keep their eye out for bringing in people that they know and like, right? So some attorneys will not have a dog in that fight and they'll say, oh, you know, I don't, uh, you know, they won't even think about asking a client if they have an, uh, an agent or an insurance broker or whatever, right? Um, or somebody will say, well, who do you want to use for title? Well, somebody who's never sold a house before doesn't even know what your question you're asking, right? right? You're telling them who you're using for title and then let them tell me that their best friend's a title agent. Right. So, you know, it is sort of just how things go in that world. I think finding the person that you um, person or persons that you connect with and that you find will will add value to you and you can add value to them. Um, Somebody probably will have a go to realtor already or somebody that they've used a few times. And uh, that's okay. That doesn't mean there's no room for you. What that means is that you've got to figure out a way to provide value to this person that maybe that other person's not doing, or um, are they open to having you in the rotation of people that they recommend, right? I I absolutely have more real estate agents that refer me business than I could possibly ever refer out. It's just the nature of the beast. Just one second. I I think everybody has to hear that. that. That is the misunderstood piece of this whole puzzle for real estate agents. They imagine that all you're doing all day long is handing out, but if you're getting business from agents, they're, they're referring it to you because they want their deal done. So again, yes. you know, a, the large percentage of business comes to you from realtors more than you can refer. Yes, out. absolutely. And when that happens, right, I, I, that's the person we're using. I would never say, you know, hey, Bill referred this, but have you ever really thought about using Brian? It's yeah. not going to happen, right? Right. Um, so yeah, I, I view it as, hey, they're bringing me in to get their deal off over the finish line. This thing is, right. is having a problem somewhere. So it's not that often actually that I get to say, hey, you really should use X, Y, and Z because most of the time people have an agent that they want to work with right. or um, they have, uh, or the person's been brought to me by an agent. Right, right. And so uh, Winston, one of our good supporters, a great agent down North County, asked that when the PR says they have an agent, do you vet them anyway? Do you check them out? Do you talk to them before you get too far down the road? Or do you just assume the client, you know, uh, they sold us our house and we want to use him for, yeah. you know, some mom's probate. It's a your limited authority with 18 different objecting uh, errors. Are you okay yeah. with us using this realtor who does one deal a year? How do you, how do you approach that situation? Yeah. So I do prod a little bit there. And I, I, so I will say, you know, somebody will say, you know, Hey, we're going to, we need to sell mom's house. And I'll say, okay, well, have you selected an agent? Or have you talked to an agent? Or do you have an agent? A lot of times the answer is yes, or it's exactly what Bill just described, right? My brother-in-law is an agent. My this is an agent. My that is an agent. Um, And depending on the circumstance, right? Depending on whether it's a very, very, very simple transaction, you know, one error, it's the same person as the administrator, 
I'm probably not going to say a whole lot uh, if they want to use that person because I have absolutely worked with extremely professional probate real estate agents that have done this a number of times and they're great. And then I've worked with the person that I'm literally doing their job as well as mine. Um, and that's fine. Uh, I can do that. Uh, where there is a little bit more going on uh, or there's multiple properties or there is limited authority being suggested or there's objections or whatever, I'm going to push a little harder and I'm going to say, hey, look, we need to make sure that we've got somebody that understands the process because it's going to cost you money if you don't. Right. Um, I get paid the same either way. It doesn't matter to me, but here's why it's important. It should be important to you to use somebody that understands this because um, if you get into this transaction and it goes sideways, it, it's never going to result in you earning more. It's only going to result in you earning less. So, you know, tell me about the person, how close of a connection are they? And oftentimes it's a friend of a friend and it's really not a big deal. Um, but sometimes it is the brother-in-law and I got to deal with it. And, um, you know, those are the ones that I'm like, okay, we're not going to swing them off the brother-in-law most likely. Right. Interesting. So it's kind of the same things, you know, and we deal with the same thing, right? Sometimes I'll have a client who will say, oh yeah, we have an attorney, you know, and I'll look them up and say, well, you're not, they're not in the trust estates division. They're not, they haven't marked themselves as probate. They haven't done a probate in a year or two. How do or I bring ever. up to them, or ever, how do I bring up to them, maybe they want to find somebody else, and it's always delicate. Those go, those, that swings both ways, and I think that at the end of the day, that's where the professionals operate, is you figure out how to do that more effectively than the other ones. Yeah. So, yeah, it's sort of the same thing in reverse. And oftentimes, I think it's probably whether you're, how hard you're pushing on that's whether the listing agreement's been signed or not. And, you know, if it has been, then maybe, you know, you, could, you feel a little bit more okay pushing. Um, I think you're always good to ask that question and say the same thing that I say about agents, right? Which is, right. hey, if you don't have somebody that understands this process, it's going to cost you time or money or both, right? right? And you really should consider talking to somebody who does this all the time. It's not going to cost you anything more. And, you know, maybe even there's an opportunity for the two attorneys to work together. If your guy or gal is not as proficient, you know, they, maybe they'll connect with, with another firm and, and have them help on this. Right. Um, that happens from time to time too. I hate it when it does, but it does happen from time to time. So that's an option too. Um, but a bad attorney or an attorney that's not familiar with the, with the deal is going to cause your transaction to take longer. It just a matter, it, it's just far for the course. The last question I have, and anybody else has questions, feel free to jump in. Um, seems to me that the bar when customers should use a professional person as an administrator the bars that the, the it should happen more frequently than it does meaning i spend a lot of my a lot of my cases where they want to save the money and they want to be the administrator themselves but they can't fill out the paper they don't know how to do east side they don't you know and and so things slow down things don't get done in a timely manner it, time is money at the end of the day for them as well do you have a discussion i'm not, obviously on higher net worth families, that's an obvious, there, there might even be somebody in place already that's professional that handles that. But for the, the one-off million dollar, million half dollar, one time they're gonna inherit a property. Um, I, so often I say to the attorney, the problem we have here is the administrator isn't really capable of being an administrator and, and they wanna save the money so we can get, in, we get somebody to step in for them. Is that something you offer? Do you, do you recommend services? How do you bridge that gap or you just bite the yeah. bullet sometimes that's life? 
Yeah, sometimes I'll serve as the administrator. I serve as trustee of trusts all the time. Um, that's probably less common in a probate scenario. I'm I'm administrator of a couple of probates right now for individuals that uh, the, the heirs are in a foreign country, right? And it makes sense to do that. Um, we do recommend and work with private fiduciaries often. Again, it's not going to cost the family anything more, assuming that uh, the the family member takes the income. Right. So, you know, obviously there's a statutory fee for the administrator and there's a statutory fee for the attorney and both have the opportunity for extraordinary fees. But assuming that the family member or friend or whomever that's serving takes the statutory fee, it's the same statutory fee that a professional would charge. Right. So, you know, you're not really saving any money. The only way you're saving money is that that person waives compensation, which is common among family members um it's you know i'd say that happens i never recommend that they do that i think that's a, i think it's a terrible job they should do it they should it's take a tough money. job like you, they, you don't is. get rich being a fiduciary or no. an administrator on a probate not on a probate no so no. a lot of I've, I've done i did uh there was a, a firm that i was referring i referred to business to and they asked me if i wanted to do it and i jumped on as a chance to learn you know i, I was yeah. sitting on my customer's seat and and i've done two now that's a lot of work it is a lot of work. Even if you hire all the professionals, you still have a lot of things you have to do that is in the purview of the of the administrator. Um, now, you're right. It, it is absolutely um, not as used as it should be. Um, we have that conversation all the time with clients around you, you know one appointing administrator or professional fiduciaries in their in their documents if we have that opportunity or if not the heirs uh, nominating a professional fiduciary um but you know we're used to dealing with individuals on this i 99% of them have do not have a professional fiduciary associated with them they have a family member or someone who's the, who's our administrator um so we're used to it. It's not a problem, but it, it certainly can result in a delayed timeline. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's a thankless job. Somebody's going to be mad no matter what. And um, particularly if there are uh, problems among the parties, um, you know, being the administrator is certainly not going to bring the parties together if they're already worrying about something. It's never get better. It can only get no, worse. Right? Right. I have to tell them, this is as good as it gets. Like, you guys are getting along now. This is as good as it gets. The sooner we get it done, it the better, because it's like food. The longer it sits in your refrigerator, at some point, it's inevitable, inedible, and then another level, it's dangerous, and probably exactly. I think the same way. Well, look, we're up at the end of, the, end of our hour. I just want to really appreciate the time you spend educating. I know I learned a lot, and I really appreciate it. Josh, if somebody wanted to talk to you or one of your probate attorney team members, you know, they had a case, they went to the real estate agent or something, what would be the best way to reach out to you guys to, to bring you to business? You know, email is awesome. Uh, phone call is great too. I can put my, I can type my phone number or, or my email address into the chat if people okay. want to do that. Um, feel free to reach out to me, um, title, escrow, uh, agent, whatever. I'm happy to help and weigh in on a situation, circumstance. Um, you know, it, it's it's fun for me it, to figure these fun, these weird issues out. Um, and if I can be a resource, I'm happy to do that and, and help. Well, thanks so much. We'll put your contact info as well in the description. If you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook or LinkedIn. And again, behalf of everybody who watches us, Josh, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. And for everybody else, this is Probate Weekly. We do this every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific time, 7 p.m. Eastern. We live stream on YouTube, Facebook, and LinkedIn, 
Uh, you can see the notes there. If you have questions, hit questions there, and we will do our best to respond to them in a timely manner. Thanks again to Josh. Uh, he is the uh, managing partner at Legoloff LLP, which is in Pasadena, and a couple other spots. And uh, appreciate him. Appreciate you guys who participated today. Have a great day, guys. Thanks so much.